well, fellow Motorhead fans, it's it's been a hell of a year, hasn't it? Been a rough few months. Hope you're all well. Hope you're all staying safe and wearing masks. We've not been on the air, as it were, for a few months now because me and Matt weren't allowed to meet up and listen to music. We've been trying to do this interview for a long time now. This episode is a talk with Tim Atkinson, who is the founding member of Leader of Down, a band he started with former Motorhead guitarist Wurzel, and whose 2018 album Cascade Into Chaos contains Wurzel's last ever recorded playing, as well as tracks recorded by Phil Campbell and Lemmy himself. Matt has said on previous episodes what a big Wurzel fan he was and how he wishes there was more Wurzel material out there. And I've commented a few times how there does need to be more new music in the metal genre out there. So I was glad to get my hands on this album, listen to it a good few times and then talk to Tim about it. So here it is, an interview with Tim Atkinson where we talk about Leader of Down, Cascade Into Chaos and some really good motorhead stories. Enjoy. Hopefully see you next month. This world has turned to shit Seems to me there's times of wit Politicians, little boys Show me a lot of noise But all the while Behind the smile On your side I mean, the thing is you picked a good band because there's so much material you could be going on there for <laughs> years <laughs> Yeah, that's it. We've hit the podcast gold man with it, so yeah. <laughs> only about halfway through the albums. So. so, Tim, leader of a down. Uh, thanks for being on with us. Hey, well, good to see you. The place where we usually start when we talk to people on this is earliest motorhead memory. Okay, um, I got into motorhead when I was about ten years old, and I saw them on top of the pops. And I was horrified. <laughs> I thought, what is that? But it stuck with me. And then they were on again a couple of weeks later. And it was sort of from then I got this weird fascination with them because it was so, um, well, for a 10-year-old, it was almost so horrible. That <laughs> yeah. this great. Um, now, my dad was also a priest. He was a vicar. So probably I was going, I didn't obviously know that Lemmy's dad was as well, but I was probably going through the early stages of Teenage Rebellion at 10 years old. And then I found there was a few other people who were a bit older than me that um, liked heavy metal. Mm. So then I think it started to seem a bit cool, maybe, that a couple of the bigger boys, should we say, were into Motorhead and whatever. And it sort of went from there. Um, so a couple of years after that, I went on a... Um, I was quite good at football, so I went on a school trip to America and Canada playing football, or soccer, as they unfortunately call it. And um, obviously I had, I bought records and stuff like this by this, you know, so I, I, I was massively into Motorhead. And the um, we were staying with host families, and the kids that were the children of the people I was staying with were into heavy metal. Um, which was great. So we were getting on like a house on fire. And then I was looking in the local paper and I saw that about four days later, the Motorhead were playing in the nearest town to where we were, which was Buffalo in New York State. So I thought, well, I can't miss out on this. 
So I spoke to the parents of the people that were looking after me, and I said, look, my favourite band are playing. Um, my parents always let me go. When <laughs> that was not true. Um, <laughs> ever before. And because they were so polite and really wanted to make sure I was having a great time, he got tickets. So the dad, um, his two children, now one of them was nine, I was about 11-ish, and then the other guy I was staying with who was American as well, he was about my age, um, and we went to see Motorhead, supporting them were Metallica, and then, uh, and, and then a band called Raven, who were British. Oh, Raven. Yeah, which you obviously <laughs> heard of, and um, I'd never seen anything like it in all my days. It was so loud, so unbelievable. <laughs> And, of course, that meant when I came back to England, um, I'd been. So I'd now broken the thing so I could say to my parents, well, look, I've been, haven't I? I saw them in New York <laughs> State. That's far more dangerous than uh, they used to then let me go to see them. Um, so that was the first time. Um, and then I ended up seeing them 123 times. Nice. 123? 123, yeah. I can hell. So there Some we go. It, it, it became, I think, one of the funny things with Motorhead is you've all got bands that you got into when you were younger, but with a lot of the rock groups, they go on forever. Different lineups, maybe, some albums, maybe not as good as that, but you're so loyal to them, whereas a lot of other, you know, friends who may be into more sort of pop stuff, the bands only go for a few years quite often, or they grow mm. out of it or whatever. But with Motorhead, it was just, that's my band, you know. I will always follow Motorhead and whatever they're doing, they were the thing. And so I joined the fan club. So I'm number 67 in the Motorhead Bangers fan club. Um, and what had happened in those days, obviously I didn't have a checkbook. I was still still a kid. So you had to get a postal order from the post office to send off to Alan Burridge. And I didn't have enough money. So it took me a week or so to get the money together to buy the postal order. And when it came back saying I was number 67, it was, oh, damn. If only I'd managed to send it in a week before. I'd have been it could have been 66. How cool yeah. would have that been, man? <laughs> so I was quite disappointed with that. But it's, it's quite a decent number to have now when you see all these people with sort yeah. of 5,000 or whatever they are. Yeah, you're the, so, the neighbour of the beast. So... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Do you remember what your first album was? The first, yeah, the first album, well, I borrowed ones from friends and things like that, but the first one I actually bought with my own money was Iron Fist. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started getting the ones prior to that. So I think I, I then got Overkill, and a bomber, then Overkill, and I was saving myself for Ace of Spades. <laughs> I'd heard all that, how good it was, but well, let me get some of the other ones. And then I bought Ace of Spades and No Sleep to Hammersmith. Um, but I'd already, um, you know, listened listen to a lot of the stuff. And, and I just loved it. It was just unbelievable. And it, like I said, it just set me on course for, you know, my life, really. You know, people say things like the soundtrack to your life, but. Sure. It is, you know, and, and like I said before, Motorhead have somehow, you can't even put your finger on what it is. I, you know, it's difficult to say, but there's, they've got such a bunch of loyal fans mm. and loyal people following them that will 
will just be there forever you know uh, and it's amazing really and, and you know you end up meeting lots of people um you know and then you realize you're not the only person standing outside the stage door on a freezing cold night at two in the morning wondering what on earth can they still be doing in there when you're sort of 12 years old yeah <laughs> it's one of those there's there's metal bands that sound punk and there's punk bands that sound like metal bands and there's a bit of a a crossover there, but Motorhead was both of those things, but very much its own thing at the same time. Like, there's nothing that sounded like it. I think that's why it makes it so unique and has such, like, a longevity where, as you say, other bands come and go and they might have lineups change and, and everything, but their sound also changes, I find. Like, you can, even with someone like Metallica, their sounds, like, changed and progress over time and... Like Motorhead's never gone stale. They've done this. They did the same thing for for forty years, but it never went stale. As they always get mm. found a way of keeping it fresh. It's it's hard to tap into. And as you say, some albums are better than others, but there's always that consistency there. You know, whatever album you pick up, it's always going to be of a certain level. And you know, if you go to a gig, you know it's going to be good. And there's very few bands that can that can boast that. I think. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's um, it's a strange thing, it really is. But they, the consistency they had, it's like when I listen to some of your podcasts, you know, and I can hear you sort of, oh, I don't like this song particularly or that song. But I can also hear that you actually mean on a sort of playing field of of normal bands in theory, because they, they there's no songs that are horrendous. There's songs that oh, are better no. than others. But again, it's personal taste. I was listening to the 1916 one did um the other day and i don't know which one of you one of you weren't particularly keen on no voices in the sky which i <laughs> love and we quite often play that in in leader of down set if we're doing a moto cover that's one of the ones we'll do um but i think there's little bits for everyone because obviously like you've said before there's the rock and roll ones that are sort of really thrashy type ones and but mm. they all swing there's this swing to motorhead which i think a lot of the other sort of bands that are trying to be really sort of heavy don't have in quite the same way. Um, and, it, and it is utterly unique. Um, yeah. I think you love it or you hate it. Luckily for them, many, many thousands of people. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of that, like when you've discovered Motorhead, where did you go from there? Like, did, were you trying to find other bands that sounded like them and just ended up stuck with like Metallica and things? Um, what, in terms of my musical listening? Yeah, like, um, with like little 10-year-old Tim, where was he going after that well, first discovery of Mohead? Into ACDC, Black Sabbath, all the usual suspects. Mm. Um, but I, I always tended to still like things I liked. It didn't necessarily have to be rock. You know, I'd like other stuff as well. Um, but I would obviously always lean towards, towards the heavy rock. So I, I'd listen to all sorts of things. But I tended, like Metallica, I like, but I never really got into them. I, and I think, again, the thing is with Motorhead, there's so many limited albums, there's so many things. It's almost like it's a full-time job keeping up. <laughs> it's enough, yeah. But yeah, I, I like look, most sort of guitar-based music. Um, and then, of course, in those days, you, you know, you, same as everyone, really, there'll be a few people in your class at school who you tend to, oh, I've got this, have you listened to this band? So someone had, mm. you know... Get, have, lend you something and you listen to this and so I used to listen to Venom Twisted uh, Motley Crue all, all the usual 
and then sometimes you find other little bits that you like from someone else that has like one album or whatever um yeah. Iron Maiden, you know everyone really but most no one ever topped motorhead but i can't tell you exactly what it is you know because you've got iron maiden fans who would go on and on about how massive wonderful iron maiden and they are superb but there was just a little thing that whatever it was that struck me with motorhead and then of course when i i started playing the bass guitar when i was about 13 not necessarily because of lemmy but obviously i knew lemmy played it um i used to play the trumpet but then a friend of mine was getting a little band together and they needed someone to play bass guitar so i started playing bass guitar because i wanted to be in a band um and then of course finding out that lemmy's dad was a vicar um and very you suddenly think oh this is a bit weird so is my dad you know so you then as a young teenager you start to have a link with people um you know which which i've mentioned to lemmy you know i told him all this as well you know and Wurzel and stuff, they, you know, they all knew, knew all this. And, and, and it's funny when you're actually, although, you know, they became friends and things, it, it's funny when you're sort of regaling stories of your sort of 12-year-old self. And they, they used to love hearing it when I said, you know, I was 13, standing outside Hammersmith Odeon or whatever. And he said, well, why didn't you come in, dear boy? <laughs> and I said, don't you I mean, how was it going to be? And, and it, it was things like that that you realise just what, you know, what really lovely people they all every member of Motel was really kind and really down to earth people, really weren't they? Earth, yeah, and you know, wanted to talk to people and were very very grateful that people were so loyal and and um, supportive, really. So you started playing in bands when you were fourteen, you say? Yeah, I, I started playing bass it was about 13, 14, and um, just sort of school bands and bits and pieces. And, and um, at that point, then that was all I ever wanted to do. So when I realised I wasn't going to play football for West Ham, uh, I um, that was all I wanted to do. Um, and you know what it's like. If you do anything creative, you get, first of all, your parents were going, you know, what's your backup? What's your backup? Yeah. Um, the bank looks good or whatever, you know, all of that stuff. And then um, schools, when they put you on that, I don't know if you did it, that thing where you have to almost like, it's like a big questionnaire and then it turns out what they think you might, you might be interested yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, it never becomes as a rock musician, does it? It's not even... No, it's almost like the test is set up so that answer doesn't come out. And you say, oh, oh you no. can work in a shop. That's like being in a band. Exactly. So, you know, it was all I ever wanted to do. And, and thankfully, I never sort of gave up on that. And that's eventually what I ended up being able to do for, for a living. And, and and Leader of Down, obviously, is the latest. I mean, obviously, done lots of other things. But... Um, um, done a lot of session work and things like that. But when me and Wurzel sort of got together, um, we we were, we were doing these rock clinics and um, that was going great. It was like motorhead clinics. So people would meet Wurzel, I'd be interviewing him. We'd show them how to play a song. Um, and, you know, there'd be a group of people paying money to come. And that was going really well. And I think after a while I said to him, Wurzel, we should do a band. And he said, dear boy, I've been waiting months for you to ask me that, but I didn't want to ask because I didn't think you'd want to. You know, and that that's the sort of thing, you know, Wurzel, you know, and the others, they're so sort of normal. You know, it, it, it was just so nice, you know. And um, so 
I couldn't have believed as a 12, 13 year old if I was going to be in a band with Wurzel. I couldn't have, I couldn't even imagined it. Not in so, a million, million years. How did you? How did that friendship like come about? Was that just through you being sort of part of that motorhead community? And no, it was. I mean, I met Wurzel quite a few times outside. He wouldn't have remembered me, obviously. I've got pictures yeah. with him. You know, I used to show. He used to laugh about it. But um, after Wurzel had left Motorhead. I, um, he sold some of his stuff, um, some of his speaker cabinets. So I bought one of his speaker cabinets with the Motorhead logo on and everything. And um, a little bit, a few, a few years after that, actually, um, a mutual friend puts in touch. Um, and we just got on like a house on fire. Um, we got on actually great. So we, we, we just came up with this idea of doing these rock school things, um, which was all really enjoyed because um, he hadn't been playing for a while and, and it was a really good way of you know him playing again and doing stuff and he had a great time and it was also nice for words to, to sort of meet a lot of the Motorhead fans um, and of course now it was coming to the time where he was being asked also to be a guest at the shows you obviously know he came back and played quite a few mm-hmm. times and it was great absolutely fantastic and then it just developed from there that's cool. That or it's cool for me to hear that he still was keeping his his toe in with with music and everything. Because like from the research I've done and what you've been able to find, you kind of see that we had he had he released Bess in in eighty seven with GWR. He did with stuff with Motorhead, and then there's kind of the solo album in like ninety eight, and then there's just like silence up until these are down. So it, I'm sure of that like he he still like was active in sort of the community because i mean i go through stages where you fall out with playing and, and you, you're like oh, i can't be asked to be in this band like i, I hate these guys now <laughs> it's been um, <laughs> been with them like two years and i can't stand them anymore but i know he was like was he like a tradesman beforehand didn't he do like building work and everything so you almost yeah, sort of like did he go back to that after army as well and actually one of the funny things with wurzel in, in the army he um he guarded Rudolf Hess at Spandau. Wow. <laughs> so was like, that is a fact. Yeah, so he had a whole heap of stories, really great stories, before he even joined Motorhead. <laughs> all the Motorhead ones. You know, Wurzel was absolutely fantastic. You know, and it, it, it's, it's, you know, so sad that he went also so young, really. Yeah. But he was such a nice guy and, you know, one of the most amazing people I've ever known and probably will ever know. Um, you know, I miss him every day. And, and it was just sort of, you'd always phone up Wurzel and he'd always have something absolutely ridiculous to say. Uh, something that just make you laugh. And if you're feeling a bit down or whatever, he'd always, not so he know what to say, but he'd just say it without thinking because it would always be something ridiculous. And I remember he'd always have these little sayings. And in some of our lyrics, I, I've put in some of the little sayings he, he, he would do. But, of course, if you don't know the sayings, no one will ever know what they are. They're just little things. Yeah. He'd always, we'd always have this thing, and I'd phone him up, and we'd go, Tim, you're a bitter, bitter man. You know, just think about that little sayings like the parents might yeah. say to you. I think he'd have them coming out all the time, and he just used to always make me laugh. Um, but, yeah, he was an absolutely fantastic person, and it was so nice. I think, um, you know, after he left and, and everything, that when he'd go and play with Motel as a guest, there'd be so many people cheering um, and, and so many people wanting to, wanting to meet him. So one of the, I can't remember what year it was, but one of the shows where he came on at Hammersmith, 
we and a couple of his friends, um, we walked in through the front because obviously we had to go to the bit, the box office to get the passes. And we walked in with a guy in front of Wurzel, then Wurzel, then me behind him with a little cushion holding his guitar strap. Someone with else was behind holding the guitar, like some Egyptian <laughs> prince or something. But he loved all that sort of stuff. And, and, and of course, people are going, is that Wurzel? Because it? it looks so ridiculous that people are not sure it was going to be him. Some ridiculous procession of lunatics all holding one. Um, but, you know... So- it was just hilarious, you know, and, and some of the, some of the things, you know, we used to get up to, and some obviously loads of the things that Motet used to get up to. Yeah, <laughs> just I can imagine. I think that's the thing. It's it's personalities as well. Um, like there's so in some, especially metal bands. Like if you're not the front man, you kind of you're almost disappear into the background. And Motet never had that. Like each of the members that's is just as bonkers as the last one. It's like they're all memorable. Oh, yeah, no, you're exactly right. And there's so many other bands that aren't like that. Um, but they all, obviously, people fall out, don't fall, but they all were aware of what the other person brought to the to the party, really, to the mm. table. Um, and, you know, Wurzel tended to run around more than Phil initially, but then Phil would start doing that. You know, there were all these different pieces. And, and I remember Wurzel telling me about some of the stories about you know, one of the things he used to really miss was sort of chats on the bus at two in the morning with Lemmy at the front, you know, and joking around with Phil and, you know, and filthy doing this or doing, you know. And they used to have a mate, me and Wurzel used to have a great big lengthy conversations about ghosts and UFOs. And then he said to me, this is what I used to speak to Lemmy about. And then it'd be him <laughs> and Lemmy on the bus chatting for hours about UFOs ghosts and, and all this sort of thing regaling, regaling sort of different possibilities when they saw things and all of that sort of stuff and, and I think Wurzel was obviously older than Phil when he joined as well um, he'd had you know more years doing other things so there was a story um, when Moti were out in the States when Filthy was in the band that Wurzel and Filthy were on the bus no one else was on the bus or so they thought and Wurzel said to Filthy, I can drive this because Wurzel could drive tractors and stuff. Because he, he, <laughs> he, So Filthy egged him on to start. The, this is an American tour bus. Wurzel started the bus up and they were playing in a venue where there was like a big car park um, because uh, like a shopping centre type thing, you know, with a big sprawling yeah. car. So Wurzel started driving and driving around the, the, the whole parking lot in this place. And, and there were little bus stops. So they'd stop, he'd open the door, and he'd say, do you want to get over? You know, <laughs> but then he started faster. And as they turned one of the corners, the bus lent a little bit, and out Lemmy rolled from his bunk, found <laughs> the pants with his drink, which was now all over himself. Because they hadn't realised that Lemmy was on the bus. And um, Filthy, apparently, Wurzel said, was jumping up and down, going, Wurzel's driving the bus. Wurzel's driving the bus. <laughs> I couldn't see that, Filthy. He shouldn't, you know, and all this sort of stuff. But loads of these little things. And then <laughs> Phil Wurzel used to play terrible jokes on people. You know, really, uh, you know, like really schoolboy stuff, which but was so funny. They, they, they Phil loves telling this story because when we go on tour with phil and phil's an absolute 
great mate of mine and we're always because i either know the stories or was there or have memory of it and of course Phil's with his sons who, who are all a bit younger and things so he um it's quite nice that we sit there i keep reminding him of some of the stories wurzel told me and then he tells me from his side but they were on tour with black sabbath and Phil and Wurzel got these little walkie-talkies. And it was when Tony Martin, do you remember Tony Martin, who, who was sing, singing in Black Sabbath for a few years? But he, so mm-hmm. he was the new singer. So they had their little call signs on the walkie-talkies. I can't remember what they were, but Phil, you'll have to ask Phil. Phil remembers what they were. But they'd be going like sundown 10 or something. This is so-and-so. And, of course, it would come out through the PA. <laughs> so they'd be... They knew this was going, so they'd be making stupid comments about Tony Martin, saying, "I don't think much of that singer." What do you think? And they'd hide and do it so he could hear it. <laughs> go on all the time, and, and Phil still laughs as heartily as he probably did <laughs> talking about it because it's you know you can just imagine all this going on, and when they used to check into hotels never with their real name so it would just be a, who could come up with the best name so there was all the usual ones like Norman Conquest you know and Ben Dover and all that and I remember Wurzel's partner telling me she had to phone Wurzel at the hotel once and um, they said no we haven't got a Michael Burston booked in she went alright try Norman Conquest yes I'll put you through to his room now <laughs> and, this, and that's was quite a common thing they all used to do but words I love telling the stories, and this is some of the thing we used to do at the rock schools. We talk about some of the stories, and you know, people used to love hearing, especially from him. You know, because mm-hmm. he was there and he was Wurzel, and you know, and he'd let people have a go on his guitar. So he'd bring he'd bring along Bess, which was the strap, which was named after his grandmother. So that's the one with the um, sort of um, it's got like spray paint scene on the scratch plate and his Gibson Les Paul which he used in latter years so we bring those along and they let people have a go on them and I don't think there's many groups really that members would let you have a go on true really mm-hmm. and this was even 10 year olds who'd let have a go on it and it was you know so great really so as, as a musician what was he like to work with when you were putting this album together but the funny thing was, and this is where really me being a massive Motorhead fan actually helped, and you don't actually realise you've taken so much in, because he was, I've written songs with all sorts of people over the years all around the world, and he was the easiest person I've ever written with, ever. Really? But i tell you why I think that was, because I sort of knew what he might be going to do, mm. because I was such a big Motorhead fan, uh, fan yeah. and... So, or I'd know what he might like. So it possibly tainted maybe what I was going to suggest. But he was so encouraging and enthusiastic. And you tend to think, really, someone of that stature would have not been like that. Mm. But it was yeah. just like sitting with someone when you're 16 in a bedroom. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, I don't like that. That's rubbish. Let's try this. You know, it was, it was so exciting and energetic. It's probably yeah, the best yeah. word. I mean, when we were writing Paradise Turn Into Dust, which was the one that Lemmy sung on, um, that was the first one we did. And the, the riff, the original riff, was an old Wurzel riff. Wurzel gave me a load of cassettes of things he'd been fiddling around with over the years. And he said, just go through those and see if you can pick... He said, it's just a load of riffs. See if you can pick some riffs you like. 
So I whittled it down to sort of four or five and I played them back to him and he said, oh yeah, I like that one, let's work on that. So we started working it up into a song and we were working on the chorus and we used to um, go every Wednesday, it was normally, we'd go down to a studio in London called OTR Studios, which is sadly gone now, but we'd sit in the rehearsal room there, just me and him. Now there were nice sofas in there and chairs, but me and Wurza would lean, kneel on the floor with a couple of beers and our guitars around a cassette recorder um, because that's how we'd rather work. So he had his really nice cassette recorder that he'd used to use for all the motel things just coming up with riffs. Um, and we were working on this chorus and we were having a bit of trouble. We got the first bit and then we wanted to sort of finish it. And neither of us were happy with what we'd done. And then Wurzel said to me, right, I've got to go to the toilet. So carry on and I'll be back in a minute. So he ran out. You know, in studio, sometimes you have like that airlock door. So there's a door and then there's a scap and then there's another sure. door. So he'd gone out, out of those doors. And I was fiddling around, obviously playing through an amp so you could hear it. And I must have been 10 minutes playing around with different ideas. And then I'd had one I quite liked. So I was playing it through a few times. And then the doors, double swing doors came flying open. And it's Wurzel. By Jove, I think you've got it. <laughs> And I said, oh, really? He says, yeah, that's the one. And then he said, I've got to go. I've got to go to the toilet. And off he went. So what I'd actually he finally came back. He'd been standing in the airlock, absolutely busting for a pee. <laughs> and then he'd heard me coming, getting a bit closer to what yeah. we were trying. He didn't want to interrupt, but he didn't want to go. And <laughs> that was the thing. And, you know, that's his Wurzel, late 50s, still having the energy of a teenager still being really excited about what we were coming up with. And then when we'd finished it all and, and sort of arranged it and everything, he said to me, you know who this would suit? And I honestly didn't know what he was going to say. He said, Lemmy. I said, really? He said, yeah, this would suit his voice. And from then on, it had, we had to get Lemmy on that song. Um, but it was Wurzel who, who suggested that right from the beginning. This particular song would suit Lemmy. So yeah, that was it. So so it was it was really nice. And when we worked on other things, it was um, Wurzel would always say to me, "Well, it's your decision, Tim. You know, you decide." It was never like I've been in Motorhead. This is what we're going to do. You just follow mm -hmm. me. I'll nod at you for the changes. It wasn't like that at all. It was very me and him working on this stuff um, right from day one. And that was actually one and what a really mark of the man to actually say that but he i could also say to him if i thought something wasn't good and and he'd say it to me you know and so we'd work on getting what we what we felt was right and he had a lot more riding on it really because we didn't well he said obviously we couldn't be a motorhead tribute band yeah because it'd be ridiculous so we had to have a slightly different sound so i was never going to try and play like lemmy because it would just be laughed out of town you know and the singer was never going to sing like lemmy because you can't. <laughs> a lot of, yeah, well, no one can, can they? A lot of people who try, and Matt Smell will um, hit me for saying this, but he, he knows <laughs> it anyway, is you tend to get the people who try and sing like Lemmy, it's just like a gruff voice. Mm -hmm. Lemmy was actually singing, it's just that's what his voice was like. So it wasn't like a forced, you know, type thing, which a lot of people sound like if they're trying to imitate or sure. use Lemmy's style. I did want to talk about like that and, and other songs rather than just concentrating on Paradise Turns and stuff. But who wrote the lyrics for, for Paradise? 
Did you write the lyrics for that tip? For Paradise Turned Into Dust? Yeah. No, that was Lemmy. Oh, was it? I was yeah. going to say... The... That one. So we finished the song and we got it to Lemmy when Wurzel was still alive. Um, but you know how busy they were, you know. And of course, yeah. when Lemmy finally gets back to L.A., he'd have a couple of weeks off before they're starting on their own record. So we ended up with this situation where, although Lemmy was going to do it, um, he couldn't fit it in or he was doing something else or then he'd have all these interviews and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then, of course, Wurzel passed away. Um, but Lemmy was still going to do it um, and possibly even more so because, you know, now his friend had gone. He wanted to, you know, honour him in, in, in some way. And, of course, he told Wurzel that he was going to do it. So the idea was that Lemmy wrote the lyrics and in true Motorhead fashion... Um, you know, Wurzel and Phil would say the amount of times they'd written a song and they didn't know how it was going to sound until Lemmy had recorded his vocals because they had no idea what the vocals were. So it was quite weird actually writing something in the way Motorhead used to write a lot of stuff where mm-hmm. the rest of the band didn't know what the song was called, how the vocal melody was going to be until Lemmy had recorded it. Um, and that's exactly what happened with Paradise Turned Into Dust. So Lemmy um, wrote some lyrics and, and um, I didn't see them, the lyrics, or know how the song was going to go until we were in Paramount Studios in Hollywood with Lemmy and Cameron Webb. And he handed a sheet over to me and Steve Clark, our original drummer, because we both went over, handed us the lyrics. He goes, what do you think, boys? And we'd read these lyrics. And then that great Lem, fantastic, because you're not going to say anything different anyway. But, yeah. You know, we, we were pleased with him. And he said, right, well, let's give it a bash. And then it was not until we were in the studio and he started singing that I had any idea what the tune was going to be like. It's crazy, yeah. So it made that that recording session quite an, excuse me, quite an emotional time because although the song had been around for a while, we still didn't know how it was going to sound. And there was Lemmy singing it. And then... He said, do you want some bass on this? Well, I play bass on it. <laughs> and I deliberately not done anything flamboyant on there because it was always the possibility that Lemmy was going to play another Yeah. So Lemmy then um, said, all right, we'll do it. So he had a couple of basses with him and um, he didn't like the sound he was getting out of him. So one of his assistants, he sent all the way back to his house to get some more guitars now this was in the rush hour in los angeles so he was ages ages coming back um and eventually came back with about three more and then lemmy eventually played that song on his epiphone sg bass which he he played a few times live um he played it on that but while we were waiting this was something that you can only really imagine what it was like for me as um a bass player and big Motorhead fan and obviously you know I knew Lemmy fairly well by this point anyway but he he um he had his couple of his Rickenbackers there and you know his signature Rickenbacker with yeah. he said right Tim play this one and he passed me a normal Rickenbacker 4003 off the shelf thing that he'd been given and I'll be playing that and he goes right when I say go and I can remember this as clear as day when I say go you hand it back to me and I'm going to hand you my signature one and carry on playing. But it's got to be fast. 
because he wanted me to see the difference without forgetting what the other one felt. So I was playing alone. He went, right, you ready? Go. And he, goes, he kept nodding, looking, you know, he does his eyebrow. He put his eyebrow and he, and he was saying, what do you think? What do you... And his signature bass was so nice to play. It was so light because obviously it had lots of wood carved out. Mm-hmm. Oak, leaf car- oak leaf carving. It was so nice to play. And he goes, look at that, it's good, isn't it? You know, and there were little things like that you could even see with Lemmy that really excited him. Um, and it was just such a wonderful experience, you know. And at the end, when we find we were there hours chatting and, and whatnot. And at the end, he said the last thing he said to me that night, he said, Right, is there anything else you need? Just let me know. And then he said, Sorry about these terrible impersonations, by the way. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> Said, um, do you think he'd like it? And I, and oh. I, I'm welling up when I said, I, I think he'd love it. Then I think he'd absolutely love it. And off he went, you know, got and driven back yeah. to to you know. But we'd been out before to record it. Um, but Lemmy was taken into hospital when he had his heart issues. And this is an example again of Lemmy. We were there. We'd been in LA three weeks. And we'd been speaking to him, whatever, and then he wasn't returning any text messages. So we we sent one, another one, because you don't want to bug him, because you know he's busy, mm. you know. And then suddenly this text message came back. He said, um, I'm in hospital having a little procedure. It's going to be a few weeks before we can do it. Now, that is what he said. Now, that sounds like he's, a, he's got a problem with an ingrowing toenail or something. Anyway, we, we, we went home and then we came back. But... Um, when we saw him, he said, I, I sent you that text when I was on the trolley being wheeled into the operating theatre. His little procedure. I mean, that is how kind and strong he was and, and sort of old school in a way. And he didn't mention that he was having something serious until weeks later. Because yeah. we wouldn't have been born. We'd have known, you know, but that's just what he was like. I think he must have saw what a what a great living tribute this album would have been. So, like as it stands alone as itself as a great album, it's also like the living tribute, the memoriam. It's it's such a nicer way of remembering someone as like the, they went out like they went out kicking ass basically with a great album. It's not like a somber thing. No, I mean that was always the plan, and and I'm glad you think so. You know that was what I always wanted to do, really, for my friend Wurzel. <laughs> that was the whole point of it. Um, but. It was, there were lots of lovely little things along the way that I ended up being involved with um, in terms of, there were times when I was thinking, well, this is never going to be finished. Because obviously you can imagine it cost thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds to get it finished because I think we were in LA eight or nine times waiting for Lemmy to do this, you know. Mm. Um, But sitting comfortably, you know, just waiting you know, I'll give you a call when I'm ready, but of course you have got to be there, haven't you? And we were in the studio one time when they were filming, I'm uh, filming, recording Aftershock. So I was a lot, a lot of the Aftershock recording sessions. And the plan was, Lemmy phoned up and he said, "Come down about four o'clock, and we'll see what we can do." So we went down, and we were chatting and whatever, and Lemmy was finishing off one of the tracks. And then we're sitting talking, and Lemmy goes, Tim, come over here and look at this. And he had two big leather-bound books, which were not like very high-quality notepads, sort of A4 size, on his on the side of the mixing desk. And he said, have a look at these. 
and he started turning them page by page, wanting my reaction almost to each page. <laughs> and it was Lemmy's little doodlings, you know, some of the little pictures he did yeah. on the albums, and lyric ideas and songs and bits wow. and pieces, which was wonderful. But of course, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, can you go and do our song now, Lem? <laughs> but I couldn't say that. So it's been absolutely a most really special moment to be shown all Lemmy's sort of inner thoughts yeah. on his lyrics. And he won't mind me saying this, but his doodlings were okay, but he's not <laughs> the best artist I've ever seen. So there were pages of these, pages and pages and pages. And we got to the end of the book. I thought, oh, yeah, that's fantastic. He pulled out another one, the same yes. song, and we went through that. And Steve, our original drummer, was looking over going, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's still on the clock. Yeah, like, going, make it funny, <laughs> you know, hurry up, what are you doing over there? And then I remember there was a lyric, and I, and I don't think it ever came in a song, but it reminded me of the line, intellectual heterosexual from Angel City on 1916. <laughs> I said that to Lemmy, and he went, Oh, yes. And he got really excited because I think, you know, it was nice for him that obviously because I knew most of the songs, most of the lyrics and everything, that it was actually talking to someone and knew yeah. what was going on, you know, and, and that was a really special moment. And then we broke to have some food. Now, we'd already eaten. And the last thing we wanted to do was spend an hour and a half because bear in mind, it's probably like nine o'clock at night now. Stuffing ourselves. So let me order a load of food. And then he said, Tim, are you sure you've eaten? I said, yeah, no, I wasn't hungry. And then all these other things. And he goes, Tim, you look hungry. And he goes, have some of my fries. So we got this extra portion of fries he'd ordered for me. He goes, eat those. But do you want some of my hot? It was all like that. And I think, well, that's lovely. And then we got talking about the Titanic um, and various other things. Because my great-grand brother was emigrating to America but got seriously ill so he couldn't go so he was going on the Titanic and oh. so my family still got the ticket um so Lemmy absolutely loved that story and he, so we got <laughs> on all these things about the Titanic so it was now about midnight and Cameron came in Cameron Webb and said so Lem are we we're going to go and do this song he said we'll do it tomorrow he said well we can't do it tomorrow because today's the last day <laughs> Lemmy said oh is it I thought it was tomorrow so we'd been out in L.A. for like five weeks at this point just to get to that. So we had to wait for another year when he was back in Los Angeles. But see, wow. now back on the stories, these were moments I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. Yeah, I get it, yeah. Because they were absolutely wonderful and, and really nice mm. moments. Um, and also just all the chats I'd have with him about various things. And he was such a lovely guy. We're just up to the albums now that Cameron Webb starts to become like the main producer for what was he like to work with? Well, Cameron's great. Cameron's really, really good. Um, so he he ended up mixing all of that album and we've just finished our second record and oh, yeah. seen that one as well. Nice. So, so that's really cool. And Cameron's great. And I think one of the things with Cameron is you'll be talking to him about a possible suggestion of an edit and he'll be nodding and listening, but all the time he's turning sideways and he's on his laptop, tapping away, and he's listening and nodding. And I'll, I'll say, right, so what do you think? He goes, I've done it. And by the time <laughs> telling him about a potential edit or something you're not quite happy with, he's changed it. 
and then he'll play it so fast. And I think he, you know, I mean, obviously Motorhead will be better to answer this, but I think he, because he stood up to them a bit. Yeah. He ended up getting them to do things. But, you know, they, they used to wind him up in a nice way, like practical jokes, because <laughs> that's what you do. And because he's American, obviously there's certain things you didn't quite get with the English humour, um, <laughs> which obviously would amuse Phil continuously. Um, but, yeah, no, he, he did great. And obviously they loved him because they had him for more albums than any other producer they'd ever worked with. That's right, yeah, he survived. Yeah, so we're probably... We did this... He, he mixed it remotely, so we sent it all out to Los Angeles. But the um, when we, if we do a third album, we're probably going to go out to LA and record it there with Cameron because um, I really like the way he works, you know. And, and he, he's a mm. good guy. He's a really good guy. And he now actually he owns those notebooks that I was telling you about because he was telling me the really last, last year. He said, "Well, I've got those notebooks. Levy gave them to me." So. <laughs> I wondered who would own up on all that stuff, like who who owns the Rickenbacker and all his notes and things like that. We'll have to do some research into that. Company or his son Paul, I don't, I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but I've got the original lyric sheet for Paradise Turning to Dust in his writing. Um, he gave us that one, so you know, obviously I'll treasure that um, because I've also got the notes that me and Wurzel wrote for the arrangement. Of yeah. It, so got all those together which is you know really nice um things was have. the process of getting uh phil to play on the album was that much much easier i'm guessing yeah well obviously a new phil and things through wurzel and whatever this is what happened we were out in los angeles and i don't know if you've ever been to los angeles but there's a bar in hollywood <laughs> called barney's beanery which is a really famous bar and it's where Jim Morrison used to drink all the time and all sorts of people in there. But it was right opposite this little motel that we used to stay in. And we were in there um, and Phil came in. So we were talking to Phil and then we used to, because he was he was recording with Motorhead over, over there. And we used to have breakfast and meet up in the evenings and bits and pieces. And we said to him, well, Phil, of course, you're going to be on the record, aren't you? And that was it, really. (laughs) He recorded it back home in Wales. Um, And it was Phil who suggested Whitfield Crane. Um, So he put me in touch with Whitfield Crane. So Whitfield sings on on that one. So, yeah, that was great. But then it it just became, um, we've got on on Children of Disease, which is the one Phil's on, we've got Wurzel playing a solo and then it goes straight into Phil's solo, just like it used to do with Motorhead. Yeah. So that was really nice to have the sort of dovetail lead guitar solos. Um, so that was really nice. And it was just also a chance, I think, for like Lemmy, Phil Campbell to play with Wurzel again as yeah. well. It was really nice. And then, like I said, there were things that came out of the whole thing that are things that I never dreamt would have happened to me. So, for example, from my knowledge, I might be wrong, but there's only two people who've ever played bass with Lemmy on a track. And that's me and Mike um, Inez um, from Madison Chains. He's on um, one of the tracks, I think, on Kiss of Death. And I don't think there's anyone else. So if you'd have asked, going back to me as a 12-year-old, well, don't yeah. worry, you're going to play on a record with Lemmy, play bass on a record with Lemmy. I mean, you think I'd gone insane. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know an album like this that you know from from the reason being able to do almost 10 years in production did you ever sort of feel there was a point where this is too big a task like there's there's just not enough there for us to be able to finish this thing did that did you have any doubts about that because it's it's a testament to yourselves and all the guys that worked on it to to have the determination to to get this thing out after after such a long sort of lead time on the production it really is i'm one of those people i think that if people say well you're never going to do that it cheese me up a bit so yeah. there were lots of people who said you'll never get lemmy on this he obviously doesn't want to do it that's why he's taken so long and i would say no he's on tour he's not going to do it when he's on tour he's an aging guy with a few health issues He's not going to do it the day after a show. He's got to be back home in Los Angeles. He's got to recover. He's got to be free to do it. And they get, oh, yeah, but you're just saying, you know, there'll be all the doubters. And then um, it sort of became like, we've got to do this. We've got to do it for Wurzel. We've got to show that, you know, Lenny wanted to do this and blah, blah, blah. And, all. and then eventually I think you get to a certain point. It's like dropping out of a marathon, isn't it? Sort of three miles before the end. You're going to kick yourself. Yeah. Uh, so we just carried on, carried on, and carried on. And it, it, yeah, it took a long, long time. It took a long, long time. But a lot of that was because we had to wait quite a long time for Lemmy. Yeah. It's an amazing achievement, though. I can only think of, I know Voivods did a, a few albums after, after the death of one of their guitars where they'd used some of the pre existing demo tapes. But I, I don't know of anything like this where there's that many... We could spend three or four shows just talking about the individual people con contributing to this thing because there's so much to talk about on it. And, I mean, we've only really talked about two songs on this thing. Yeah. Like, one of the other things I love, I know, I know you've mentioned that you didn't want to just do a copy of Moathead, and yeah. it's not. I mean... The only thing that's that's really sort of similar to it, like you say, is Paradise Into Dusk, because Lemmy put his bass and his lyrics on there. But like the the rest of the album is is brilliant. Like I we talked about Bess a few weeks ago, well a few months back now, which we've lost, and we loved people say people say I'm crazy. Like, yeah, I think that's a great work and great this. song. Yeah, it's. It's got that motorhead humour in, but you wouldn't you wouldn't associate it with directly with the band. But I think it really it really captures something there. And like I, we wish there was more of of this because we love that midnight in London. Um, well, like midnight, I, and we've done a reworking for the new record. So that's right. Very catchy songs that Wurzel was coming up with as well. Some of those those ones in that period. And he wanted to do People Say I'm Crazy again. Um, and one of the reasons that it fades out on our version is because we want, because we, we went on forever and obviously it's, um, it won't do that. We wanted to give the effect of like um, Wurzel still playing. He's gone off into the night and he's still playing. He's just fading out. Oh, that's um, beautiful. <laughs> on that track. And I'd, I'd look forward to Have you got any news on when? Because I know with everything that's going on, everything's sort of on hold, but... Have you got a potential release date for, for the new record? Or? This year. It's yeah. finished. Finished. 
but the record company we're going to be with the same record company cleopatra they need a certain number of months to get the vinyl pressed and all this sort of so we're probably looking late october which is around the time of wurzel's birthday as well um so wurzel isn't playing obviously on this one but when we were writing me and wurzel came up with sort of 50 or 60 different tracks and bits of piece so so he's got credits on this there's some of his stuff Good. on him. He's just not playing because um, obviously we haven't got any more more yeah. stuff. Ray, looking forward to hearing some of that. Case. Well, I'll send you a copy when we get them. Yeah, in, in I'll, I'll definitely get. I'll get them. I mean, just through through talking, like you sort of piece into like we had questions and you sort of piecing things together. Like earlier, you mentioned about Rudolf Hess. Yeah, I was. Is that where that third verse of Feel Good, which just read it out i just can't make sense of it but when you were saying about rudolf s is that where all this comes from yeah the idea is so most of the lyrics i i write and without um you pick up influences along the way so obviously one of my influences is lemmy and he likes wordplay and almost let's say meaningless wordplay is not the right thing but sometimes inane things that you think, oh, Christ, I know what he's talking about. So on this particular record, on Cascade into Chaos, there's um, quite a lot of private jokes which ended up being fitted into the the lyrics, which, of course, potentially get people to think of something else. So on on Feel Good, um, what it says about you'd like to meet your daughter... um, well, I just flipped that round and said, looking like your mother's mother. Only because it cracks right now. But the Rudolf Hess thing is because Wurzel used to guard Rudolf Hess. Yeah, because it was that and you were mentioning about talking about UFOs and everything and suddenly it all seems to click into place. Yeah. It's like, right, that's where all this comes from. <laughs> but we didn't want to write stuff that going, oh, yeah, you said you saw a UFO and you guarded Rudolf Hess or something. <laughs> but in Punch and Geordie, the... the um, Punch and Geordie are two of Wurzel's friends he knew from years ago, who I've never met. So that was the working title of the track. And when Wurzel passed away, I didn't want to change some of the working titles to a more, say, normal standard title. Sure. I felt almost that was being disrespectful or something, even though Wurzel wouldn't have minded. He says he wasn't here. So I thought, as I've no idea who Punch and Geordie are, I thought, well, all right, there we go. Who are Punch and Geordie? That, that's basically what it says. But all, pretty much all of the lines in the verses of Punch and Geordie are stupid little things that me and Wurzel used to say to each other. It says, like, stand still there, that man. You know, Wurzel would say that all the time. And it was strange that, that with Wurzel and me that there was this, have you ever heard that sort of, riddle thing that's um one bright day in the middle of the night two dead men got up to fight back to back they faced each other drew their swords and shot each other have you ever heard this yeah. it's like a nonsense thing well anyway i know that off by heart because i learned for some unknown reason i learned it off by heart when <laughs> i was i remember saying to wurzel i started off that and i was on the second line he went back to back they fa-, he knew the whole thing as well so there were so many little funny little things that we used to have so I'm sure he'd have quite liked the stupidity of some of the lyrics or the personal side of, of it, um, because 
it's things about him, but only if you've been in on the conversation, you'd realise. Yeah. Like the last few things I wanted to sort of talk about where once you'd once you started to almost complete that was Fast Eddie like one of the last people to come in to to record the two um well, two Fast Eddie solo songs, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Steve Clark, who was our original drummer, was also in Fastway. Yeah. Um, in one of the um they had quite a few different people. He was in one of the lineups um for, for a period of time with, with Fastway. So he was a big friend of Eddie's. Yeah. So he did all that. He spoke to Eddie and Eddie suggested doing a reworking of, well, we actually, Steve Clark suggested doing a reworking of Snakebite, which was on one of the Fast Eddie records. But that was apparently, I think I'm right in saying, a track they were going to do with Fastway at one point, but it never materialised. Yeah. And then Eddie did it. So we recorded a new version of Snakebite with Eddie singing. So this is all new stuff. And then Eddie and Steve were talking about doing another one. And Eddie said, well, I've got Laugh at the Devil. Um, so, did he have the master tapes from... Oh, I keep forgetting what that album's called because I keep thinking... Yeah, no, it's, it's over. over. Yeah. But did he still have the master tapes from that? Because yeah, that... he did was. So it's, it's, Lemmy didn't play bass on that in the first place. So it's new drums, new bass, Eddie did new guitar, and it's Lemmy's vocals, but there's some other extra bits in there from the original tapes yeah. that Eddie put in. So Eddie did all that at his studio, um, at his home, um, and we did it all sort of separately, um, and then it went off, you know, to be mixed and everything. Yeah, so that was almost like an, another thing. Great. And I remember when we were at um, Birmingham, the last time Filthy and Eddie, when they came out on stage, um, Eddie was there with us, you know, so we saw all the so-called, you know, classic lineup together. Um, and that was great, you know, it was absolutely brilliant. And a few of the rehearsals on that tour I went to in London, Eddie would come down to for the motel rehearsals and see Lemmy and everything. So that was really nice, you know, that was really lovely. Um, so that's how that came about. That's good. I'd, I'd like how it's very much your and, and Wurzel's record, but I'd love that there is all this. It's almost like dipping in and out of history with all these different different artists coming together. But like I'd, I'd suspect it's for ages that like they just got the master tapes of that vocal out, and like they must have got they must have just played along to the click exactly, and then just put the um, yeah, vocal from like '94 on it. It's just yeah. again, it's one of that those that just bizarre little tidbit about this record where, like, you can trace the Genesis back all the way back to, like, the mid-90s. Mm. It's, oh, it's amazing. There's so much about this record that you could talk about. And the thing is, like, with Whitfield and Crane, because obviously he was on Born to Raise Hell with them, you know, and Whit, yep. really lovely guy, you know, and he's a um, massive, massive Motorhead fan, you know, and it was and he, he was absolutely thrilled to be singing on... on what something that Wurzel was playing on, you know, it really meant a lot to him as well. And that was really lovely to hear people, you know, as, as, um, sort of the statue of Whitfield Crane, who were absolutely bowled over to be asked to be on it, which was brilliant. You know, it was so nice. And I would really wish Wurzel had been around to hear these people saying these things about him. Um, you know, and then we got some great reviews of it as well. 
Um, you know, one Power Play magazine gave us a 10 out of 10 and, and all this stuff. And, and that was so nice. And I really wish that he could have just seen that because it, it would have absolutely thrilled him to bits, I'm sure. You knocked it out of the park, though. You really did. Like, this has been on repeat on my in my car for a while. Um, but I, I really look forward to, to this chat and we're definitely going to do a, a full review of the album as well. Um, it's well worth it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Brilliant. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you one little other thing. that You, you can obviously ask me anything else you like, but um, one other thing that was quite amusing from when I was a kid, the words that we loved this story, it was um, one birthday or Christmas, I wanted the shaped picture disc of Killed by Death. <laughs> and I asked well, my gran was going to get it for me. And so I told her what it was and she'd written it all down. And then the story goes, she didn't tell me this, but my mum told me that when my gran went into the record shop to buy it, she had to hand over a piece of paper with the name on because she couldn't bring herself to say. <laughs> when I told Wurzel, Wurzel absolutely loved that story. You know, these little things that the band are never going to hear, these silly little stories that go on in 13 years yeah. And he loved that. So that was all really nice. And I always, when this record finally came out, that's why we tried to put as much effort as we could into getting some really good pictures, um, lots of unseen pictures in the in the CD booklet and on the record. Um, and then the, the picture of Lemmy and Wurzel is the last ever picture taken of the two, the last time they ever met, well, which I, I took as well. Um, and... It was just sort of, it's just trying to be like a proper tribute to people who were great friends and were obviously especially, and also heroes who ended up still being the heroes, you know, even though I got to know them very well. Well, like I said before, man, the album is it's a great living tribute, but it also it has its own sounds, and Leader of a Dance stands as its own band. And I, to echo what Matt said, we're really looking forward to the next album and more to come. I know it's hard to say, that, especially in this time now, but what about touring? Is there anything on, on the doors for 2021? Well, cancel a few things that we hadn't even announced. So we've had the dubious things <laughs> cancelling things before they were announced. Um, so, yeah, we will be playing again. But I, you just don't know, do you? I mean, I, I really doubt there's going to be a lot happening this year, to be honest with you, because you can't get the crowds yeah. in. But, we've, we, we, you know, we went out with Phil in Germany last year. We had a great time. We... we we did a big show right at the end of the year in Berlin on for a Lemmy, Lemmy tribute um, show that was really good. Um, but that was our last show on the 28th of December last year. So we'll just have to see. But we want to. As soon as we can, we will be. Great stuff. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us. My yeah. pleasure. My pleasure. Keep to talk and keep up yeah. the good work. Keep up the we'll good work. <laughs> we will. Thanks for your time, mate. Hey, right. yeah. Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye. Yeah.